free of Plugged In. We're excited to kick things off here and break down the latest in energy news and why it matters to you. I'm Brian Deppish, an energy reporter at the Washington Examiner. My co-host, Neil Chatterjee, needs no introduction, but I'll let him go ahead and give it anyways. Neil? Thanks for that, Brianne. Neil Chatterjee, longtime aide in the United States House of Representatives and Senate. Got to spend some time as a commissioner and chairman of the United States Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So long career in energy environment issues. And I like to talk a lot, so it works well for a podcast. I'm really excited about this season. We've got some great guests coming on, some names you guys will absolutely recognize without giving too, too much away, and a lot of really great topics to delve into. We're really going to widen our focus a bit this season, not just focus on industry concerns, but you know, also the compounding issues of climate change, extreme drought, as well as these geopolitical crises that are caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. This has essentially turned the energy landscape as we know it completely on its head. Absolutely. We're going to discuss grid reliability, efforts to transition to renewable energy, both in the U.S. and abroad. We're going to hear from some lawmakers directly who are spearheading clean energy changes in their respective districts. And we're going to look at efforts that have tried and failed in some states, clean energy projects that offer new promise. And we're going to drive home, you know, why it matters for us, for you guys at home, and for folks who might otherwise have really no idea about any of this stuff. As Neil knows, I am not some sort of an industry wonk by any stretch of the imagination, but I think what we're seeing in these past few months, this last year even, is proof of how fundamental these issues have really become in our everyday lives. Extreme weather is affecting us all. Soaring electricity prices, electricity demand and high gas prices are affecting us all. Rolling blackouts, extreme heat and drought that threatens uh, commodities shipping and hydropower production seems kind of to me, I guess, like a, a perfect storm of sorts, kind of a convergence of events that really illustrates how crucial this type of reporting is. Yeah, there's no question about it. Issues that I think a lot of Americans, uh, a lot of our listeners used to take for granted are now first and foremost in their lives. And as Americans are feeling the pinch of inflationary pressure, it's felt most acutely in the energy space, whether it's filling up our gas tanks or getting our electricity bills. We're dealing with that economic impact. But then also questions around reliability, how to deal with climate change, how we can ensure that our grids are built to withstand extreme weather events, but without compromising reliability as we adjust those grids to deal with this new reality. Just so much that we can dig into. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here with you at the start of what I think will be our best season yet. As we kick it off, we also really want to hear from you guys. What do you want more of this season? What do you want to hear from us? Feel free to shoot us an email, let us know, because we welcome all thoughts and suggestions. Yeah, download uh, the podcast, comment on it, hit us on Twitter, easily reachable. So much has happened since we recorded our last episode. You know, we took some time off this summer. Since our last recording, there have been a number of significant events to have taken place. In my world, you had the Supreme Court weigh in on West Virginia versus EPA and really rein in the EPA's ability to regulate CO2 emissions. You had the Inflation Reduction Act. It was dead. It was alive again. It was dead again. It was uh, alive again. It, it was like in Fatal Attraction when Glenn Close is in the bathtub and you think she's dead. And just when you do, she pops back out again with the knife and ultimately was signed into law. And then grid challenges. California was pushed to the brink due to extreme heat that really led to 
some pretty dire circumstances. They came through okay, but it raised questions about markets and reliability and the viability of the grid. So a ton of stuff in that area. Brian, I've been reading a bunch of your stuff this summer. You've clearly been very busy. Yeah, there's been, obviously, like you said, no shortage of topics to cover. I guess we could start probably where we left off, which was, you know, right on the heels of the Inflation Reduction Act. That was obviously a huge injection of roughly $370 billion in uh, clean energy uh, projects and climate spending. Huge win for Biden, big for Democrats, finally something that cleared the Senate. It also, I covered the EV aspect of it all, and in particular, the resourcing concerns. The way that the provision is kind of written requires a certain amount of materials be sourced from North American manufacturers. And that's actually not really a supply chain that exists in the U.S. yet or in Canada. So that's drawing concern from a lot of auto manufacturers. And I think in in recent weeks and months, this really has prompted, you know, if you've been reading the headlines, just a huge wave of new investments in the U.S. We're really seeing automakers kind of make this leap and announce new production facilities, a new battery, battery production facilities in the U.S. So I think they are taking this message from Biden loud and clear. Yeah, look, it was a big deal. I'll be the first to admit there's a lot of good policy that came out of the Inflation Reduction Act. But at the same time, I'm frustrated that it wasn't bipartisan. I think it could have been bipartisan. I think if you look at the component parts of ultimately what what went into this, you know, offshore leasing, investments in clean energy technologies ranging from bringing clarity to the wind and solar incentives, new incentives for carbon capture and sequestration, you know, a lot of carrots, no sticks. You couple that with potentially adding much needed permitting reform to it. This could have very easily been the Bipartisan Energy Policy Act of 21. I say that because it's tough to get anything bipartisan done in election year, but it could have been bipartisan. I'm going to call balls and strikes fairly. And there were a lot of good policies that came out of this. And first and foremost to me was this move to bring the domestic supply chain home. We're seeing right now what happens when you are dependent on your energy security. Our European allies have become wholly dependent on Russian gas and Vladimir Putin is weaponizing that. If we were to move aggressively to transform our resource mix here in the U.S. to really accelerate the deployment of clean energy technologies, but to do so in a way that would make us dependent on a foreign supply chain, we don't ever want to put ourselves in a position where we're dependent upon our adversaries for the component parts necessary to power the clean energy economy. So I think it was really, really, really smart to include a significant investment in bringing that supply chain home. But that's going to lead to real questions in the future as well. One of the reasons that clean energy is thriving in U.S. markets today is because the business case for clean energy is really strong because these resources are extremely cheap. Well, they're cheap because we've been benefiting from essentially imported Chinese equipment. The Department of Commerce did an investigation earlier this year that had a really chilling effect on investment in renewables because they were investigating whether, in fact, certain Asian countries were circumventing Chinese tariffs. Look, at the end of the day, I think it is a very good thing. It'll create jobs and economic security here in the U.S. to bring that supply chain here. But In the short term, it's going to lead to an increased cost in renewables. And how are Americans and policymakers going to confront that when they're forced to really in some ways choose between the China agenda and the human rights agenda and juxtapose that with the climate agenda? It's going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out. 
Yeah, and I think that's kind of an interesting debate that we've seen a lot of leaders kind of line that they're they're trying to toe. It's really delicate forcing these energy security concerns and pitting them against reliability and their efforts on climate change, clean energy, things like that. We've also seen in this, I guess, nuclear falls somewhere in the middle, right? But we have seen almost a really a shocking shift, a complete 180 from Germany that has agreed to keep its its three remaining nuclear reactors online for longer than expected. Obviously, as it deals with the ongoing crisis amid Russia's war, we have seen a complete 180 from Japan. And then also, most recently, Gavin Newsom and the California legislator have approved plans to extend the life of Diablo by another five years, which is a, a huge move that I don't think some folks that I've spoken to from California's energy sector did not, would not, said they would not have anticipated this move, you know, as recently as two years ago, even. Yeah, there's been huge changes in the energy sector and with the view of certain resources. Look, I think in some ways, the reason Russia felt empowered to move on Ukraine were because of a lot of energy policy decisions made by Germany. Angela Merkel was no Russia dove, was no Putin fan. She made a series of energy decisions that put the Germans in a vulnerable position. She moved Germany away from coal-fired generation in order to enable the country to meet their CO2 targets. And then in the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster, she moved the country away from nukes, and that put them totally in this position where they're completely dependent on Russian gas. And they're now trying to reverse course, and they're seeing how challenging it is. Here at home, you mentioned it, in California, where they found themselves in a situation where they were retiring certain sources of generation that were necessary to keep the lights on. And they did so at a time when the balancing resources, you know, the replacements, if you will, were not ready to be deployed. They were looking at the possibility of electricity shortfalls that could have led to brownouts and blackouts. And that did lead to Californians having to take drastic steps to get through this summer. So, Neil, I actually have a question for you. What do you think changed, you know, since we saw these rolling blackouts in 2020 in California? They were obviously not adequately prepared for that heat wave. What has the state done since, in your opinion, to really bolster its grid, keep it prepared and keep the lights on really this year? So they took some steps, emergency waivers to keep certain gas plants that had been targeted online. They made this decision to reverse course on Diablo Canyon to have access to that nuclear resource. They coordinated with their neighbors to see to the extent there was availability for surplus capacity, that they could have that capacity online. What was really effective is, you know, they they communicated with their constituents and basically sent out messages asking people to not charge their electric vehicles at certain times, to keep their house pre-cooled and to not lower the thermostat below 78 degrees. Look, it may have worked in averting the worst, which would have been blackouts or brownouts, but that's not without consequence. And certainly people have pounced on the fact that in the immediate aftermath of California, announcing that at a certain point they would prohibit combustion engine vehicles from being sold, they simultaneously sent out a message saying that Californians could not and should not plug in their EVs. People made a lot of fun with that and had a lot of hay with that. But, you know, the reality is it was a easily illustratable way of showing the challenges of the energy transition. Germany's living it. California is living it. Texas is living it. And it's just something that all of us are going to have to contend with in the in the coming days, weeks, and years, which is why you need to listen to this podcast, because we're going to really dig in on these issues. Yeah. And these climate issues, these extreme weather events are really absolutely compounding in nature. There was a study recently about weather whiplash events, just the, the severity of these extreme hurricanes, extreme drought, extreme, you know, followed by flooding and things that are 
that are just wreaking havoc all across the world in different ways. Most people, I think, nowadays are seeing firsthand, you know, the real-time effects of these in ways that they just never predicted they would. They are seeing climate change ramifications just play out before their eyes, and it's pretty, it's pretty staggering. It is. The question will be, are we willing to adapt to deal with that? Are Americans, Europeans, Asians willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary to address it? And how do we go about it? I think it's worth noting that the Inflation Reduction Act didn't call for sacrifice. It called for a lot of subsidies and incentives to drive investment in clean energy technologies. But there was no stick. And I think therein lies the challenge with confronting climate change. We are becoming more keenly aware of the devastating impacts of climate change and the need to mitigate emissions, but we want to do so in a way that enables us to keep the things we like about our daily lives and not dramatically alter them. People want to fly. People want to eat beef. People want to drive their cars. People want to cool and heat their homes in really hot summers or really cold winters. And so it's not just unique to Americans, humans writ large, we don't want to change and, and give up some of the things we have in our lives. And so this, therein lies the challenge for leaders and policymakers is how do we enable the energy transition to allow us to decarbonize in a way that doesn't fundamentally alter the way we lead our lives? Yeah, absolutely. And how can we do that in such a way to ensure we still have the energy in place that we need on a day-to-day basis? I think I think Exhibit A, like you mentioned with the stick example, is Europe, where they've just implemented these windfall tax levies on companies. They are trying to, you know, offset some of these these soaring electricity bills that have climbed, I guess, 10 times as high as they were, you know, at the same point last year. Just a series of really staggering steps and in some cases returns kind of a step back on some of their own clean energy goals as they just really scramble and are in crisis mode. Yeah, look, I think the European example is one that we need to pay close attention to. And I think that's why I've been so appreciative of the reporting you're doing in this regard, because I think, you know, Americans are going to confront a lot of the same things. Some of this certainly emanates from Putin's war and, and his invasion of Ukraine, but we're dealing with that here. I think right now there's been so much focus on gas prices because gas prices are so visual and evident and are, are such clear indicators of inflationary pressure, but utility bills are skyrocketing right now. And I think Americans are about to see the cost of what it took to get through a really hot summer. And with natural gas prices on the rise, electricity bills are going to be through the roof. And that sort of hidden inflationary tax is going to start to really impact Americans. We're we're talking about the possibility of shutoffs in some areas, people who can't afford to keep the lights on in their homes. This is a real humanitarian crisis potentially that we're staring down. Absolutely. I actually spoke to a source from the National Energy Assistance Directors Association who told me more than 20 million U.S. households, I guess that's one in six, are behind on their monthly utility payments right now just due to this staggering, staggering uptick in electricity costs. He said actually that the cumulative amount is more more important, I guess, for all intents and purposes than, than the number of people behind. And that amount is $16 billion right now. And that's nearly doubling the pre-pandemic total. And he described it as kind of a canary in the coal mine moment for people. It's really, it's kind of a harbinger of things to come for an affordability crisis, you know, with no signs of inflationary pressure decreasing and food costs going down, you know, all those things have continued to soar. You know, gas costs have declined since since the all-time high. These energy costs abated slightly for the month of August, but you know, it might not be for long. And actually, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen kind of made the rounds on recent Sunday shows and said, 
ahead of that, some indicators in Europe, including a potential for capped Russian gas prices, as well as the G7 leaders Russian oil price cap plan slated to go into effect for December, could actually lead to gas prices going back up as high as they were this summer in the months ahead. So that was a pretty stark warning. I hadn't seen a ton of news coverage of it, but it's something that, you know, she warned in pretty stark terms that this is a risk that Americans should be should be preparing for this winter. And I think that's lost on a lot of folks. Yeah. Can you kind of explain to our listeners about this this price cap and what it would entail? And, you know, as somebody who hasn't tracked this that closely, to me, it seems to undermine the point of sanctions. What exactly is it that they're trying to achieve here? The Russian oil price cap is something that the leaders, G7 leaders, agreed to in June. They, at the time, it was considered sort of an abstraction, a pie in the sky theory. They've really got it moving and got some legs. They're trying to basically set a price of Russian oil that is high enough to allow them to continue production, but low enough to kind of cut into Putin's war funding because oil export revenue is one of the main sources that allows it to fund its war in Ukraine. They have not yet set the exact price of the cap, which is which is a critical point because obviously setting it too low risk to some degree Russia Russia halting production completely, and then also they need to they need to deal with the fact that there are other buyers specifically India China that are unlikely from what we've seen so far to adopt the price cap mechanism since they've benefited so heavily from discounted crude, and in that case they kind of need to also consider what steps to take. Do they try to enforce second? sanctions on those countries. You know, what other kind of levers are they willing to pull to to ensure that plan takes effect? That's fascinating. And so how does this tie into kind of the EU and Gazprom and planning? This all seems totally intertwined. Gazprom has essentially throttled, continued to throttle its gas exports, uh, piped gas exports to the EU via Nord Stream 1 its main gas artery to the EU, um, down to just 20% capacity, which it then halted completely earlier this month. And EU leaders were kind of floating the idea of a capped Russian gas price, which then prompted Putin to say that he would retaliate and halt all energy imports. This was a big deal, and it kind of sunk, at least for the near term, the EU's plan to include a price cap in its energy savings plan. That is going to be probably passed or adopted as a separate step. But yeah, certainly certainly, Gazprom has played a huge, huge role in kind of escalating this energy crisis. And whether or not the EU will curb Russian gas prices is to be determined, because whether Russia could actually stop its LNG imports without draining one of its key sources of war revenue remains to be seen. Analysts have noted that Gazprom really, at this point, lacks the large-scale capacity necessary for overseas shipment, which makes any gas redirection to other buyers like India and China, at least in the short term, really incredibly difficult. Wow, that's really sobering. And to bring it back home here domestically, it kind of reinforces the need to to really tackle what I'm anticipating Congress is going to wrestle over for the next few weeks, and that is permitting reform. So this is the piece of the Inflation Reduction Act that has not yet settled. Senator Manchin, in agreeing to $369 billion in clean energy spending that went into the Inflation Reduction Act, negotiated a side deal, a side car, if you will, in which he secured an agreement from the president, from Senator Schumer, and from Speaker Pelosi to include a permitting reform component that would be attached to a must-pass vehicle right now Congress is wrestling with a continuing resolution to keep the government open. And I think Senator Manchin is hoping to attach his permitting reform proposal 
to that vehicle. It's interesting. No one's really seen the language of what's in it, but it's drawn opposition from all sides. The progressives on the left are opposed to anything that will touch NEPA, the, you know, sort of a sacrosanct environmental statute. And folks on the right are saying, hey, this doesn't really accomplish anything. What Manchin is talking about, this is just for show and is kind of meaningless and won't really move the needle on getting energy projects built. But I got to tell you, as somebody who, who spent a lot of time in this space, particularly at FERC, an agency who's you know, one of his principal responsibilities was evaluating infrastructure. Look, we need permitting reform in this country. And what's interesting is that historically, the opponents of permitting energy infrastructure are now the proponents of building out clean energy infrastructure and transmission to get the clean energy onto the grid to mitigate carbon emissions. And so, I was screaming this from the rooftop during my waning days at FERC. You cannot tie up gas infrastructure on the Natural Gas Act side in bureaucratic red tape and not expect those same obstacles to apply to building out transmission to get clean energy to market on the Federal Power Act side. And so I think both sides need to take a deep breath here and see what the best path forward is. If we can get some real meaningful, if not everything we need, but modest, meaningful permitting legislation, I think Republicans ought to embrace such a thing. But it's got to be real. And on the other side, I think environmentalists of the left, they need to rethink their approach to permitting. Their historical opposition has been based on the fact that they were trying to stop fossil fuel projects. But if they want to get clean energy onto the grid, they got to make it easier to build stuff in America because we're going to have to build a lot. This $370 billion investment that Congress has just made in deploying clean energy, all for naught if you can't get it on to the grid, if you can't get it interconnected. And so to me, the trade-off of, yes, permitting reform would probably, if done right, enable expedited permitting of natural gas infrastructure in the short term. But to me, that's a deal worth taking if in the long term you have an easier time building out the necessary infrastructure to get clean energy to where we need it. So it'll be really, really fascinating to see how this back and forth plays out in the coming weeks. I hope Congress can get it right and we can get some real meaningful permitting reform done. But as always, the devil will be in the details. And I fully anticipate that we will be spending a number of other episodes of the Plugged In podcast talking about so much of what we've covered today in this season preview. And there's so much more to come this fall. Thrilled to be here again. And yeah, really excited for season three. Best season yet. Can't wait. Thanks so much again for listening to season three of the Plugged In podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. Beeman.